the Republicans to wake up. Is the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. As your pronouncer just told us, the Peter B. Collins Show is supported by listeners. I want to single out to Franklin A. Brown, Jr. of San Francisco. Thank you for your support. And young Justice Fleming, age 17, of San Diego, said he doesn't usually listen to lefties, but he's discovered this podcast, and he put 50 cents in my PayPal account because that's all he's got. Thank you, Justice. It means a lot to me. How are you? Well, in a moment, we're going to check in on the dark days that are upon us right now. I'll explain. And later in this podcast, we're going to meet a whistleblower who has kept his job. Joe Carson, who's blown the whistle multiple times at the Department of Energy. And he does so because he's an engineer and he believes in the terms of his employment. And he has petitioned President Obama in a recent letter and also the publisher of the New York Times. We'll talk about what he's asking for as Joe Carson joins us shortly. But first, my friend Brad Friedman is with us today, the leading election protection advocate in this country and the citizen journalist who publishes at bradblog.com. And uh, these are dark days, as we're going to discuss with Brad. Thanks for joining me today, Brad. Uh, dark days would be an understatement, Peter. I haven't talked to you in a while. Glad to be here. And, of course, you had to call me on what is now, I think, officially for this country, the worst week ever. And that starts with the, uh, the, the election in Massachusetts. We're going to talk about not only the way the Democrats bungled it, but also their failure to allow the process to go to its uh, 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 normal end and to make sure that every vote was counted. And there are, once again, serious anomalies in the way the election was conducted and in the vote count that surfaced from the electronic voting machines. And there's now only one purveyor of those machines. And, of course, they're managed in the uh, New England states, particularly Massachusetts, by a, uh, <laughs> a nefarious operator. But we also want to talk about this uh, historic and a very draconian Supreme Court uh, uh, decision, five to four, written by Justice Kennedy, establishing that corporations shall rule the United States uh, going forward. And we'll get to that issue in just a few minutes. Let's start in Massachusetts, or is it Massachusetts? Because, uh, Brad, you have done, a, a, once again, an excellent job of covering the election process itself. And uh, let's start with the satirical piece that you wrote about the way uh, Martha Coakley uh, may have injured some of her campaign workers <laughs> in her rush to get to the phone to concede 
to the truck driver, Scott Brown. Uh, yes, uh, following in a great tradition of Massachusetts politicians, Martha Coakley could not wait to concede. She even broke John Kerry's concession record. Uh, you know, couldn't wait to give up the, uh, the race, to roll over, to make sure that democracy would be bravely averted in the Bay States this year. But of, course, but, of course, they knew the outcome because of the exit polls, Brad. Well, you would think, except there were no exit polls. So we can't even look at the exit polls and say that the exit polls, you know, showed one thing and the results showed another, because guess what? They did away with the exit polls, and along with it, democracy. Because the fact of the matter is, almost the entire state is counted by optical scan debold machines, which means uh, the good news is people mark down their vote on a piece of paper. The bad news is no one counts the goddamn votes. They simply run them through the scanner. Whatever Diebold says, whoever Diebold says is the winner, is the winner. And, I mean, for Christ's sake, Martha Coakley did not even wait. This was incredible. Did not even wait for AP to call the race. Usually they call it well before anybody's ballots had actually been counted. And, uh, you know, she wanted to even beat AP to the phone. And she did, and she quit. And once again, democracy was averted because almost none of the ballots in the entire state of Massachusetts were actually counted. The voters of Massachusetts were once again ignored, like they are in state after state after state, except, by the way, in the uh, small towns where they hand counted ballots in Massachusetts, and well, well, well but, but, but Brad, but Brad, you know, yeah. there you go again because this yeah. was such a complicated ballot. There were yeah. so many candidates and issues on it that they had to use computers to count the vote, even hackable computers. You understand? You couldn't keep us up all night counting the ballots, could you? Yeah, this is what is remarkable about this. This special election had one contest on the ballot with three people on it. I mean, you know, they could have taken these ballots, separated them into three piles, counted them, and been out of there in 20 minutes. As a matter of fact, in those small towns where they do hand count the ballots, most of those counts came in before the Diebold precincts came in. The hand counters beat the Diebold uh, uh, machine counters and, of course, beat them for accuracy, as far as I know, because... The people who counted them with their eyeballs actually bothered to count them as, as opposed to relying on Diebold and another company by the name of LHS Associates. We can get into that in a second, company with a criminal background. But what do you know, in those hand-count counties, it was a different story than across the state, apparently, because in, where they hand, bothered to hand-count the ballots, Martha Coakley ended up beating Scott Brown, as far as we can tell. Yeah. And uh, there's another uh, important uh, uh, symptom, a piece of evidence that is really something that we've seen before in elections that uh, were suspect or hacked or stolen. And that is that on Election Day, people went into the booth with a ballot that had been pre-marked for the Republican. Yeah, as of, uh, I believe it was 6 p.m. on Election Day, the Coakley campaign, actually, uh, her election attorney, Mark Elias, which was, uh, for a moment, a, a brave, uh, a, a bold, uh, shining light of hope that perhaps she was going to uh, fight for this election, because Mark Elias was 
Al Franken's attorney up in Minnesota in that eight-month election contest. Mm -hmm. So it was good to see him on board, and this seemed to be a sign that maybe she was going to fight to make sure that the uh, voters of Massachusetts actually had their ballots counted. But apparently that wasn't the case. He came forward in this press conference to announce the reports that they had gotten so far in uh, at the time of the press conference uh, in at least five different reports in three, at le- quote, at least three different locations of voters being given ballots that were pre-marked for Scott Brown. Now, there's been no explanation for that. Uh, some on the right, of course, have suggested that this was Democrats trying to, uh, you know, put doubt into the contest. Problem is, if you look closely at the reports that came out, uh, some of these towns and some of these officials, their explanation was that uh, poll workers accidentally gave these voters cast ballots. Problem with that. Cast ballots... Uh, where you've got the Diebold op scanners, uh, a cast ballot ought to be locked up inside the Diebold op scanner. Right. What the hell is the ballot doing outside of the op scanner? It shouldn't be there, which uh, raises some, at least some great red flags for me that I guess her campaign doesn't care to look into. Yeah. And, and this is stunning on so many levels. Uh, and, you know, you're the election guy. I'm a little more on the political side. Uh, to see Ted Kennedy's seat lost in this whole process where they put up a really lame Democratic candidate who wasn't willing to uh, politic in a traditional uh, Boston or Massachusetts style, uh, who was very weak on the issues, uh, couldn't even get her baseball players and teams correct. Uh, I, I mean, she was a loser in many respects. But uh, that and the implications of it, of course, are, are very dark because of the shift in the Senate, and because the Democrats are going to capitulate uh, to this new reality where Republicans who haven't had 60 votes themselves since the 1920s uh, were, were able to uh, maneuver and operate very well uh, without the 60-vote supermajority. But Harry Reid and Barack Obama and uh, their, their kind are willing to basically just accept this as a, a huge repudiation, and not only the, you know, the, I, I'm not excited about the health care bill that has surfaced, uh, but it will certainly not survive in its current form because of the Democratic uh, capitulation. And for them not to even spend a moment examining the process of this election to see if it was conducted in a way that is fair to the individual voters of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, to see if the outcome uh, really was, it was as, as stated, uh, it's it's an abdication of their responsibilities to us, the citizens. And it is just infuriating on so many levels, Brad. You're absolutely right, and I'll just go backwards there with uh, three points. Uh, one, yeah, the fact that the Republicans now appear to have a 41-59 majority in the Senate, <laughs> I, I mean, is just mind-boggling. But that appears to be the case. That seems to be the uh, operative way that the Democrats are moving forward. They're uh, giving over to the uh, Republican majority with 41 votes that yeah. they have. I mean, it's, it's, 
it's absolutely mind-blowing. The, uh, the fact that, yeah, Harry Reid, Barack Obama, now we know Barack Obama is not going to get in there and fight for election integrity. We, have, we, we looked at almost uh, the, the exact same story. You and I uh, spent a lot of time on the air talking about this uh, back in early January of 2008 in the New Hampshire race up there. Also had Diebold optical scan machines, also run by this company uh, with a criminal background, LHS Associates, who uh, sells, maintains, and programs those machines up there in New Hampshire. Also saw Barack Obama going into the race. Everyone suspected, all the polls said he was going to win. Hillary Clinton ends, ends up winning. And in the hand-counted precincts, Barack Obama won. In the Diebold precincts, Hillary Clinton won. Exactly. So you saw a very similar situation, and Barack Obama, it was close enough that Obama at the time could have asked for a hand count of the entire state for 2000 lousy dollars. He didn't do it. He told the uh, voters of New Hampshire to go straight to hell, and apparently he and Harry Reid and the rest of them are willing to tell the voters of Massachusetts and, oh, yes, the voters of the U- U.S. of A. to go straight to hell as well. And Teddy Kennedy, I, I, you know, I can't – the thought of, of him realizing that his seat, after he had given his life fighting for health care, could possibly go to a wingnut, teabag, crazy man like Scott Brown just weeks after, uh, after he died, I, it's just – it's a remarkable turn of events. Well, and I give John Stewart and his writers credit. They skewered this by uh, 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 reporting that uh, Scott Brown is the next president of the United States. <laughs> and uh, that yeah. Barack Obama is kind of stunned and spinning like a bobblehead, uh, trying to figure out what happened just one year into his presidency. I think Scott Brown may very well be the next president of the United States. Nobody's votes need to be counted to get us there. Massachusetts set that example. And now all bets are off as of today's uh, Supreme Court decision, which is just uh, will has transformed this country into something that has never happened before. This is not the country that you or I or anybody else grew up with. All bets are off. As far as I'm concerned, the Supreme Court decision means it is now game over in this country. Now, before we uh, traipse into the Supreme Court decision, and I want to, uh, anything else uh, that we should highlight that people should read at bradblog.com about uh, this bungled election in Massachusetts? Yeah, let me, let me just make uh, uh, two points. Uh, we still have an article up there, uh, Hackable Diebold Machines to, de- to Decide U.S. Senate Race in Massachusetts. That's a link to an article that I wrote at the Governor Times in upstate New York, a right-wing uh, news, uh, news outlet who, to their credit, figured out what the hell is going on here back in uh, the in the November election when their favored candidate, the Conservative Party's Doug Hoffman, up in the New York 23 special election, right. similarly got screwed by optical scan machines. Suddenly they realized the things that I've been talking about for years, you know, are not the stuff and nonsense, are not conspiracy theories, are... Uh, serious things to be concerned about, and to their credit, they uh, they covered this issue. They allowed me to uh, write a whole bunch of words on it, warning people about how that election would be decided, and warning people as if uh, the Diebold machines weren't bad enough about this company that was running them, LHS Associates. And I'd urge you to go to bradblog.com, search for LHS, and you'll find out about 
this company that ran that election up in Massachusetts. The uh, just very briefly, the uh, the, the main uh, top sales director of the company uh, pled guilty to narcotics traffic narcotics trafficking about 10 years ago. He showed up a few years back on the Brad blog, went off on a, uh, on a rampage uh, telling uh, Brad blog and their readers that they were full of shit, that uh, we were all crazy. His, his tirade earned him the uh, honor of being kicked out of the state of Connecticut after the Secretary of State Susan Beiswitz up there saw what this crazy man had to say. She barred him from the state of Connecticut to her credit. The company is still there, but this guy, Ken Hajar, is gone. Furthermore, Ken Hajar also admitted, and this is, uh, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but I'm damn close here. I believe he said, quote, we don't follow every little law. Hmm. He said that on the air when he was talking about uh, the fact that they routinely come in, open up uh, voting machines, change memory cards right in the middle of the election on election day, despite the fact that that's illegal. He admitted on air that they do that all the time. So you've got that kind of company running machines uh, made by a company like Diebold, machines that are not in uh, that are uh, that violate federal voting system standards that can be hacked in such a way that you will never know an election has been flipped unless you bother to count the ballots. And that's what they didn't do in Massachusetts. And I hope people will inform themselves about this because these machines are used in state after state around the country. And unless somebody, somehow, somewhere, Peter, steps forward to do something about it, democracy is dead. And what you just described is multi-layered corporate control of the most fundamental public process in our system of governance. And I'm reluctant now to call it a democracy. And uh, that is something that is anathema to me and should be even to people who are pro-corporate, because this is a process that should be purely transparent and the, the fundamental right of every voter to have his or her vote counted as cast is, is being violated on, on a level that we can't even actually uh, fully estimate because the whole process is, is uh, so much off limits to public scrutiny. I said this was the worst week ever, and um, I believe that was probably an understatement when we started here. I mean, so as, it is that bad. As it we're speaking on the 21st of January, and this podcast uh, will be published uh, later today, and I hope people will listen to it promptly, but some people hear it much later. Uh, we are just reeling from the decision announced earlier today, the 5-4 Supreme Court decision authored by Justice Anthony Kennedy, uh, essentially uh, uh, just uh, gutting the efforts to r- uh, control uh, corporate influence in our political system through the massive amounts of cash that they can marshal uh, to buy their way uh, to, to legislation or candidates that uh, somehow escape their grasp through the uh, high-paid lobbying process that uh, they have been effectively using, uh, uh, particularly in recent years. And uh, in upcoming podcasts, probably the next episode coming out, we will talk with David Cobb, uh, the Green Party candidate uh, for president in 2004, whose heroic intervention helped us understand the heist in Ohio. And uh, he and uh, some of his colleagues are plaintiffs in uh, co-plaintiffs in the case decided by the court 
So we'll be hearing from him. And I'm also going to try to reach David Swanson, who is a longtime activist who uh, is very concerned about the shift to corporate control in this country. So uh, be sure you grab the upcoming podcasts to hear further commentary. And with that said, Brad, tell me your reaction to this decision. Well, before I get into my reaction, which may be so uh, outraged, I'll lose track of it. You mentioned uh, David Cobb and David Swanson and all of those uh, folks. Uh, We've been uh, speaking, I've been speaking with them uh, for the last several months when we expected this decision to come this way and uh, have prepared for it to do really the only thing that can be done, as far as I can tell at this hour, which is to move for an amendment to the U.S. Constitution. They have set up a a website, and I've signed on to this campaign, which was uh, released today as the decision came out, uh, over at movetoamend.org. That's movetoamend.org. And you can sign the petition uh, at freespeechforpeople.org, as we are left in this country at this point, incredibly enough, to fight for free speech for people, because apparently uh, folks like uh, Exxon and uh, Diebold and AIG and any other corporation you can come up with has now been determined uh, to be a person of their own who has free speech, and their free speech, since what Exxon made, what, $45 billion in profit, If they wish, they can take that $45 billion in profit and put all of it into the next presidential election, into the 2010 elections. They will dwarf uh, you and I and we the people. It is now we the corporations in this country. It is absolutely unbelievable, and this nation, as of today, January 21 is unrecognizable from what it was for the 200-something years that preceded, I'm sorry to say. Well, and uh, just as one example of what we've seen in the past year alone, the effort to derail the uh, uh, the stillborn health care reform that has come out of the Congress and that the Obama administration is still trying to keep alive, this uh, effort, as we saw in August, was attacked by corporate-funded, phony grassroots organizations like Americans for Prosperity, like Dick Army's Freedom Works, and they had to use these uh, uh, indirect and um, underhanded ways to inject corporate money into this process in an effort to derail it. And now they won't need AFP. They won't need Freedom Works because the tobacco companies, the oil extractors, uh, the uh, coal-fired power plants and the coal industries that have the most to lose as we try to save the planet from climate change, all these will be able to pour money directly into candidate campaigns at the federal level, and uh, presumably that will trickle down to the state level. I haven't read the decision, so uh, I I still reserve comment on that. But we know how it will affect federal uh, election campaigns. And with 37, I believe it is, Senate seats up for grabs and, uh, uh, you know, potential uh, shift in control of the House of Representatives, we're in for a, a kind of replay of 1994, but with much more dire consequences because of the, the way corporations will be able to muscle the political process going forward. If you look back at 2009, there was more corporate cash put into lobbying, ads, and everything else than any year in the history of this nation, and that was with the restrictions that they had 
up until today. As it was, the corporate spending on, on lobbyists, and by the way, not just for health care, we're talking about uh, the climate uh, legislation, uh, we're talking about anything, anything that was on the Democrats' agenda was opposed by the corporations, by these uh, groups like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, who put billions into fighting against everything, and that was when they were, uh, when they were restricted. Now it's off. All bets are off. Uh, a couple of quotes from uh, some of the decisions here. Uh, Justice Kennedy wrote, quote, The court has recognized that First Amendment protection extends to corporations. Uh, Justice Roberts wrote, First Amendment rights could be confined to individuals subverting the vibrant public discourse that is the foundation of our democracy. God forbid, right, we should uh, confine First Amendment free speech rights to individuals? Uh, you know, corporations are now in. What next? Robots? I mean, this is just unbelievable. Scalia piled on. Uh, by uh, saying that, quote, we should celebrate rather than condemn the addition of this speech to the public debate. Because, you know, as you know, these healthcare corporations, these banks, these Wall Street outfits, uh, the energy companies, the coal companies, they have not had, uh, they have not been able to uh, join the public debate up until now. So Justice Scalia is uh, celebrating that now they will finally be in the debate. That's it right. We're, we're taking, we're taking the muzzles off. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, it's I, sick. It's I, sick. It, it, it really is. I, I just, it's, it's almost beyond words. Uh, you know I'm rarely at a loss for words, but I am just so blown away by the turn of events uh, here. I'm, I'm also uh, not you know, prone to being hyperbolic, frankly. Uh, and yet I look at this thing and I have seen nothing, nothing, like this in the history of this country, and I see no way that this can be changed at this hour uh, other than a constitutional amendment, which is not an easy process as is. It's going to be much harder now because the corporations get to rally against that, get to put as much money as they want into the media, into the advertising to fight such constitutional amendment. I don't think there's anything really that can be done in, uh, in Congress or in the White House I think we're just stuck with this. We are just screwed hard, yeah. Peter B. Well, and uh, Brad, I want to credit my uh, my office neighbor, uh, Larry Strick. He's an attorney, and I had a brief chat with him this morning after this news uh, arrived. And uh, his comment was remarkable. He said, well, Peter, you know, the first thing that they will buy and uh, pay for is the so-called Paycheck Protection uh, Legislation, which uh, stalled in the, uh, the, the last of the Bush years, but was an effort to check the power of uh, labor unions to have the same right that has now been extended to corporations yeah. by requiring that every individual member has to authorize the use of union funds, dues-derived uh, money, for any kind of political messaging. And this is going to be, uh, you know, a, a David and Goliath contest where, where David is going to just get uh, pummeled because uh, even on a battle like this, the unions cannot compete with the kind of money that corporations will bring, bring to bear to silence the representatives of working people. Yeah, bad news. David is dead. 
Uh, Goliath won this one, and uh, I see no no sign of him being resurrected. I mean, what you're seeing, what you're going to see on the right, you're seeing it already, is this uh, false equivalency uh, suggesting that well, this decision will allow for both unbridled corporate spending and unbridled union spending. Well, there's a problem with that for a start. One. You know, there is no union that has access to the kind of money that these corporations do, that, uh, you know, Exxon uh, Mobil, who made $45 billion, the largest profit in the history of the world. There is no union in the land that can possibly compete with that. Number two, unions are actually representing people, human beings, uh, people who work, people who have jobs. Corporations are representing nothing but profits. They are fighting for profits, period. I mean, it, it, you know, it is not a level playing field. You will hear that it is, of course, on the wingnut media. And, of course, the, the very same corporations own that media, so that's what you can be expected to hear. In his dissent today, Justice Stevens wrote, quote, while American democracy is imperfect, and he may win the uh, understatement of the year award there. <laughs> uh, few outside the majority of this court would have thought its flaws included a dearth of corporate money in politics. Uh, indeed, but apparently that's what the majority thought. And I should add, this is what comes of not counting ballots. This is what I've been ranting about with you, Peter, for years. This is why I'm infuriated once again tonight at John Kerry for rolling over in Ohio in 2004. We have him to thank, frankly, for, the, uh, for this wingnut majority we now have in Congress, these liars who came forward and said they believed in, uh, in, in decided law and that they would not overturn decided law. They lied about that. They went out of their way. Justice Roberts actually asked these guys to bring this case to them. The case that was before the court had nothing to do with this. That's right. It was about you know a movie that was made about Hillary Clinton and whether that could be shown on TV or something you know in the weeks before an election. And Roberts said, okay, that's great, very interesting, but please do me a favor, go away, come back and argue whether corporations should be allowed to spend anything they want on any race they want, in any way they want. Uh, you know, that is activist judges. That is litigating from the bench. That's what we have in the Supreme Court and all these teabaggers and losers out there who think that they're fighting against uh, judicial activism. Guess what? That's what you got in spades at the top of this uh, country's judicial system, because that's exactly what this decision was today. Uh, judicial activism, uh, the very, very definition of it, Peter. And what we have to also, uh, I think, uh, acknowledge here is the complicity of Democrats in providing this majority on the court by failing to even uh, challenge or uh, uh, reject the nominations of both Chief Justice Roberts and Associate Justice uh, Scalito. Uh, that his name is Alito. Uh, but uh, uh, what we saw was very clear, the corporate connections and the corporate records of both of these judges when they were put on the court. And the agenda was not hidden. 
uh, they sure danced around the whole chat about stare decisis and how they would honor precedent uh, with the court. Right. But their their uh, proclivities, their biases, were exposed for all to see. And the corporate Democrats were unwilling to challenge and take on the Bush administration over these nominations. They rolled over, and now we are paying the price for it. And you can blame Bush. Certainly he nominated these people. And, uh, you know, you can, you can offer up some blame to the Republicans. But when you see the obstructionist tactics of the Republicans in the minority in the United States Senate and how successful they have been, and then you see how timid and, and just ballless the Democrats were uh, in both of these confirmation processes back in the, the uh, second term of Bush. Uh, we have to uh, clearly lay blame on them for failing to represent us, failing to anticipate the fallout from their weakness and uh, their unwillingness to really challenge the very clear uh, uh, biases of these justices before them. Well, of course, and failing to see it is is no excuse. They saw it. They were warned about it. They did nothing about it. Peter, you and I and the Young Turks, we stayed on the air, you know, for 24 hours trying to uh, filibuster to encourage the Democrats to step up and filibuster these nominations. Now, do you think for a second, Sotomayor was uh, allowed to be seated. The Republicans didn't filibuster it, but she was replacing someone who was already on the liberal side of the court. Do you think had uh, something happened to uh, Scalia, you know, if he was the one being replaced, do you think for a second they would have let any kind of nomination go through which would have changed the balance of the court? Of course not. They would have filibustered. And, you know, and now, and they will do so again, by the way, if, that, if, if someone on the Supreme Court has to be replaced that is seen to be a, a liberal, they will use their filibuster. They will use the filibuster that the, the Democrats did not do. And, uh, you know, so you can blame uh, John Kerry for not fighting for our votes. You can blame the congressional Democrats for uh, seeing this coming up the road and not doing a goddamn thing about it. There's plenty of blame to go on. But, you know, it's hard to blame uh, Republicans and George W. Bush when they did exactly what they said they were going to do, exactly what they wanted to do, and exactly why Democrats are supposed to be in power to stop these people. But they didn't, did they? They did not. Brad, I'm uh, up against the clock here, and I just want to uh, acknowledge something that you told me about that I hadn't uh, heard before we uh, started our conversation here. And that is the dream of liberal talk radio embodied by Air America is now dead as well as our rights <laughs> uh, versus the corporations. And uh, I, it, it's very sad. And, and certainly Air America produced Senator Al Franken and it produced Rachel Maddow on MSNBC. And I'm grateful for that. Uh, but uh, from the get-go, they internally bungled it. They burned through massive amounts of money and had little to show for it. And then in the past year, they tilted in a tabloid direction with Montel Williams, and uh, that was a a predictable failure. And uh, you told me that at the end of this week, Air America will cease operations. Uh, That's right. Uh, Maybe even uh, by the end of today, I can't recall. But they will be no more. Uh, They'll be doing a few reruns, I think, next week to give affiliates time to uh, scramble and figure out how to replace the Air America shows out there. But yeah, Air America was, uh, as as we've discussed many times, was uh, you know mismanaged from the start. People who knew nothing about radio, 
but the fact is, they shouldn't have even had to do that. Uh, had it not been for the corporate control of our people, the people's airwaves, uh, which has taken over, you know, every radio station, every inch of bandwidth pretty much in the entire nation to put on the corporatist point of view, the Rush Limbaugh's, the Michael Savage's, the Glenn Beck's, and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, they shouldn't have had to exist. But the FCC long ago stopped enforcing uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the need for radio stations to serve the public interest, and now they serve the corporate interest. And that's what's come of Air America and folks like you and me. And I, you know, I hate to say it, but folks shouldn't have to come to the, uh, to the, to the ghetto, if you will, of podcasts. Peter, your show should be on in every car, on every station, 600 stations across the nation, just the way Rush Limbaugh is. But that, too, we have ceded to the corporations. So this is getting worse and worse. And listen, as, before I uh, let you go here, or before you let me go here, uh, we didn't have time to get to it, but I know your listeners are interested in uh, – we have a bit of an update in the story of uh, Mike Connell, mm. the uh, – Bush Rove IT guru who uh, was about to testify in the election 2004 election fraud case um, before he died in a mysterious plane crash at the end of 2008. It's a story that uh, I received a project censored award for uh, investigative journalism on. Well, that story we can say a little bit here is censored no more. The February issue of Maxim now on stands features. Uh, a full feature article on the mysterious death of Mike Connell, and I would urge your listeners to get out and pick up Maxim and uh, give this uh, story a read. It's pretty extraordinary. It's an important story, and uh, you'll enjoy the babes in the magazine as well. Brad, thanks for everything you do, and uh, we'll talk again soon. I want to uh, pursue some of these issues even further. And as we speak, uh, I have seen not a word about the, uh, uh, the issues related to the Massachusetts special election and the corporate media. Uh, I hope that's not uh, a permanent blackout. But like so many issues, including Scott Horton's recent expose of uh, detainees who were murdered at Guantanamo, uh, the corporate media prefers to uh, cover stories of uh, oh, the lead stories this morning, despite the historic Supreme Court decision, were about how much teenagers use the Internet. That's what I saw on my television set. Brad Friedman, bradblog.com. Thank you very much, sir. I wish I could say it was my pleasure, but good to be here, Peter. Thanks. The Peter B. Collins Show is sponsored by The Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Do me a favor. Do yourself a favor. Try the fine, earth-friendly wines imported by The Organic Wine Company since 1980. Many of my friends report that wines that used to give them headaches don't. Like a nice Merlot or a Pinot Noir that's organically grown, no headaches, no sulfites. Click on the link on my homepage at peterbcollins.com for a special introductory offer just for you. Our next guest is a guy who I think uh, Tom Petty wrote this song for. I just want you to do a little exercise. Google Joe Carson and Department of Energy.
Joe Carson's been working for the Department of Energy for about 25 years now. He is a professional engineer, a PE, and he's blown the whistle on wrongdoing that he's seen in his workplace. And unlike many of the whistleblowers who I've had the pleasure of talking with in the Sabelle Edmonds co-hosted Boiling Frogs interview series, Joe Carson still works for the federal government, and he joins us today from Knoxville, Tennessee. Joe, how are you? I'm fine, Peter. It's a, it's a privilege to be uh, on your show, and, and uh, uh, particularly with the other people you've interviewed with Sabelle Edmonds on Boiling Frogs, that I would be considered with uh, some of them as, uh, uh, I feel, I guess I'm making a difference. Well, I'm interested in your stories, but also some of the actions that you've taken recently that we'll talk about in just a moment. But I did challenge my listeners to Google or use your favorite search engine and just enter Joe Carson and Department of Energy. And I came up with a full page of responses here, including actions before the uh, Court of Appeals, uh, federal circuit court cases, uh, various letters and petitions that you have uh, written over the years. And uh, I really appreciate that you take your work seriously and that when you've encountered problems, you didn't just uh, either tolerate them and remain silent or go into the private sector or transfer into another department so that you wouldn't have to really confront the issues and face them down. And in a few minutes, I want you to tell our listeners about some of the episodes that uh, you have actually prevailed in, uh, where many others that uh, we've talked to in the Boiling Frog series at the uh, Drug Enforcement Agency, at the uh, uh, FBI, at the CIA, at the NSA, uh, have not been so fortunate. But I want to start off with a couple of letters that you've written in uh, the last month or two, one to President Obama and one to the publisher of the New York Times. And in these letters, you are trying to draw attention to the failure to protect whistleblowers who surface in various agencies of our federal government. And in particular, you want to draw attention to the U.S. Merit Systems Protection Board and the U.S. Office of Special Counsel. Now, this MSPB is an agency of the government. I pay attention to government, Joe. This has been my passion for many years, politics, policy, and government. And I had never heard of the Merit Protection Systems Board. I'm sorry, it's Merit Systems. See, I can't even get the name right. So uh, take a minute here to tell our listeners what the Merit Systems Protection Board is supposed to do and why, since its inception, it's never even approached its mission. Okay, well, uh, a little background. Uh, until 1883, uh, civil, uh, federal employment was all patronage. So when the parties would change, whether it be the Whig, the Democrat, the Republican, all the federal employees would be would basically uh, would lose could lose their jobs, whether it be working at the post office, the the uh, the, uh, the ports, or, or whatever. And uh, in eighteen after the eighteen eighty election, President Garfield was assassinated by a uh, disappointed office seeker, and as a result of that and, and other things, the Pendleton Act of eighteen eighty three created the what is now the Federal Civil Service. Mm-hmm. Now, between 1883 and today, the biggest change to the federal civil service occurred in 1978 with the passage of the Civil Service Reform Act of 1978. And that is when the Merit Systems Protection Board was created. And what happened uh, with the Civil Service Reform Act is what had been the Civil Service Commission, its duties were were basically split into three agencies, the Office of Personnel Management, the Merit Systems Protection Board, and the Office of Special Counsel. 
but what, uh, what I want the listeners uh, to understand is that federal employment in all agencies, at all levels, is based on what are called the, the merit principles. And these are codified in law, the merit principles. Now, when an agency violates the merit principles against an employee, that is called a prohibited personnel practice, a PPP. And prohibited personnel practices uh, include whistleblower reprisal, but they also include nepotism. They include discrimination based upon race or age, uh, marriage status. So there's a, there's, a, there's a range of prohibited personnel practices, but, they inc- but it, it includes whistleblower reprisal. Um, the Merit Systems Protection Board has a function for federal civilian employees somewhat similar to the Department of Labor. Um, in, in that, if, if uh, in the private for the private sector, if someone in the private sector alleges reprisal, uh, they can they can complain to the Department of Labor, and and the Department of Labor through it has administrative law judges, kind of a quasi judicial function or an administrative law function that can hear complaints, mm-hmm. and the Merit System Protection Board is somewhat modeled on that. The Office of Special Counsel, though, is unique, and it's probably unique in, in jurisprudence in America and maybe in the world, in that it is a federal law enforcement agency specifically created to protect federal employees from agency law-breaking. So you, so you have a federal agency or federal law enforcement agency that's basically to investigate federal agencies for law-breaking. Okay? So it's always been a little dicey. Um, and, and, the, and together, uh, they have, there are complementary duties to prevent, to protect federal employees from these prohibited personal practices in that the Office of Special Counsel, the law enforcement agency, uh, agency heads have a duty to prevent prohibited personal practices in their agencies. Again, this is codified in law. Mm-hmm. Now, the Merit System Protection Board has got two basic two, two functions. One is this administrative law quasi-judicial function, which some of your previous interviewees, and I, I've, I've experienced that uh, in great length. But it has a second function, which is it's an assessor, of the health of the merit uh, of the merit principles, and and it's a, it is again required in law to do what a, in the law the term is special studies to determine and report to the president and Congress as to whether the public interest in a civil service a federal civil service which is free of prohibited personal practices is adequately protected, mm-hmm. and and this law goes back to the Civil Service Reform Act, so the Merit System Protection Board and uh, Office of Special Counsel both opened the doors on January 1st, 1979, so 31 years ago. And uh, what I found, uh, even going to my own individual whistleblower case, but what I found is that, you know, DOE was, was, was slapped me around with impunity. And, and I'm an assessor. And I'm, so as I'm being slapped around, I'm saying, well, why can they get away with this? And, and, and I'm pulling the string and I'm realizing, well, why is not the Office of Special Counsel protecting me? Why is not the Merits Protection Board informing the President and Congress that federal employees are not adequately protected from prohibited personal practices. And that's kind of what, what, we've, what the letter to Obama, what the letter to the publisher of the New York Times is. I'm alleging 31 years of law-breaking, fundamental law-breaking, law-breaking by omission, not commission. They're not doing their duty in, in fundamental ways. At the Merit Systems Protection Board, at the Office of Special Counsel, which has resulted in a battered merit, system, merit principles. And, and, and with that, if, you, if the merit principles apply to all federal employees, every, civilian federal employees everywhere, well, that has explanatory powers for 9-11, the Chris, uh, Christmas bomber, the financial meltdown, space shuttles falling out of the sky, uh, 
uh, health, health uh, uh, you know, the, the, the veterans coming back and not getting proper health care, you know, on and on and on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so I'm, uh, my letter to the president was basically laying out when you have all these different problems and all these different agencies, what's the common, what can be a common root cause? And the common root causes, we have deficiencies in the scope and or implementation of the merit principles. And Joe, again, I'm I'm trying to figure all this stuff out. But when I look at it from the my my uninformed perspective, it looks to me like the MPSB and the OSC, which are part of the executive branch, are uh, flawed architecturally. That uh, the design here doesn't permit true independence. Because, as I understand it, the uh, Merit Systems Protection Board is dominated by appointees from the current president. And so uh, any embarrassing or illegal uh, actions or reports that might surface uh, can be easily squelched because of the the political accountability Mm -hmm. of the members of this board to the president who appointed them. Well, that, um, 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 yes, that's possible. And and my... My response is, I'm not going to disagree with that assessment, but if, if agencies are not following the law, they're going to be ineffective. Now, if they're following the law and they're still ineffective, then I would be more the, you know, just the basic architecture is wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it could, be that, it could be that what I'm saying, even if it was corrected, would not fix the problem. I'm, I'm open to that possibility, but, but I'd, I'd like to, until we can say we've corrected the, we've corrected the law breaking, you know, maybe that would fix it, mm-hmm. or, or fix it to some extent. And, and and it's just it's America. It's a democracy, and it's a we have to say yes. There are executive branch agencies, but OSC is a little is a little different. Yes, it's an executive branch agency, but it really it, if you look at some of the words in the law, it's really supposed to be more a creature of Congress. In that, the annual report for OSC it doesn't go to the president; only goes to Congress. Now, I'm not that it's classified. Obviously, the president can get a copy of it. Uh, and, and it also has that OSC is supposed to be making recommendations to Congress, not to the president, just to Congress, as to how the laws need to be changed, if necessary, to better protect federal employees from prohibited personal practices. Hmm. So, so OSC is supposed, again, it's supposed, and, and um, I'm saying where I'm saying it's, it's unique. OSC, in a sense, is like a public defender, in that, by law, it's supposed to act in the interest of the federal employees who seek its protection. Now, now the OSC attorneys do not have an attorney-client relationship with the complaining federal employees, but by law they're supposed to be acting in the interest of, of that uh, of that federal employee. Now they're not, but but I would have to put some of the, the you know the the, the blame. Uh, you know, the Congress. Where's Congress doing the oversight? Where's the mainstream media? Um, yeah, and 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 where and where are the federal employee unions? Mm-hmm. And and actually, you know, this is. Um, you can tell I've been doing this for quite a while, Peter. But a lot of uh, people make basically benefit from an office of special counsel that doesn't work. Well, and, and you made the point in some correspondence with me that some of the agencies, these are non-governmental organizations, uh, nonprofits based in Washington, that try to provide citizen oversight and independent oversight. In some ways, they benefit from the way this system malfunctions because if it were functioning properly, uh, they wouldn't have a, a real reason to exist. There's a dynamic, right, and, uh, and, and, tense, and conscious or unconscious, if the system are working properly. When I look at my, if you're a concerned employee, when I get my official policy, 
It does not say call the government accountability project. It does not say call the project on government oversight or some other, you know, a watchdog mm-hmm. group. It says yeah. go to the inspector general, go to Congress, you know. But if those avenues aren't working or if you fear reprisal for using those avenues, then this kind of back channel uh, 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 mechanism be- becomes more, more used. And I'm not saying there shouldn't be a back channel mechanism, but if you, if you are basically, you know, if, if you're one of those organizations, you know, the, the fact is that you need, you need the, the broken system as one result has more people picking up the phone to call you as opposed to trying to work within the system. Yeah. And then and, that, and I, I in saying this, uh, I know a little bit about POGO, the Project on Government Oversight. I've talked to a number of their uh, officials over the years, and I don't impugn their motives or um, their their ethics or the way they operate. But you make an observation that I think is cogent, <laughs> that uh, they, they wouldn't be in business, in the business of a nonprofit, if the governmental systems were working properly. They would not have as much, they would not, have, you, know, they, you know, they would not have as much to do. And, and certainly, um, I've worked for nonprofits, and, you know, working for a nonprofit, you know, you have to compete for that, for, for money. You, see, you know, you still have to somehow, you know, get money, you know, money coming in. And, yeah. and uh, what POGO and, and some of these other groups do, and I'm not, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to they do a lot of good things. The, the, mm-hmm. the America's better for having the present. However, let's you know let's why is not why is there not been this focus on on MSPB and the Office of Special Counsel? I'm saying for 31 years they haven't followed the law. 31 years. Why is it Joe Carson 31 years later saying this and not them many years ago? Uh, so, so I'm kind of I'm trying to explain the phenomena. You know, mm-hmm. my, maybe my hypothesis is wrong, but let's de- let's identify whether MSPB and OSC are following the law properly. If they are, then then my hypothesis is wrong. But if they're not. Then we can say, well, how did this go on for so many years? Yeah, and then and I think then my then my theory would have then have to you know, at least merit some more credence. Now, Joe, one at a time here. Tell me what you would like President Obama to do, and separately what you'd like the New York Times to do about the issues that you've raised. Well, my hope is to for the President Obama to say, let's see the forest for the trees. We have we have all these problems, you know, facing America, and 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 the you know you could see all these various scandals that have occurred over the years in these various agencies, maybe instead of there's some problem with CIA, how do they not connect the dots, or some problem with FBI, or some problem with Interior with these leasing scandals, maybe we have to step back and say, what's wrong with the merit principles of the federal civil service, that we have all these you know, various uh, scandals occurring in all these various agencies? Because that's, that's the common, the DNA, the common factor for all federal employment is, are we operating for the merit principles? That's when I, federal employees... Uh, Peter, I, I was in the military before I joined, uh, uh, prior to being a federal, civilian federal employee, and I did not realize that when you become a federal, a civilian federal employee, you take an oath very similar to the oath the, the president takes. Um, so I took an oath to uphold the Constitution, mm-hmm. and, and and again, what is a federal employee? Then, you know, the, the 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 process is if you you're hired per the merit principles, you will work per the merit principles, you'll be you know you'll be promoted per the merit principles which is supposed to prevent the politicalization of the agencies, is also supposed to prevent uh, corruption and dysfunction. Um, so my, my point to President Obama is, President Obama, I'm saying that the Merit Systems Protection Board cannot tell you today, cannot tell you today, couldn't, hasn't done it for 31 years, whether or not federal employees are adequately protected from prohibited personal practices. I'm saying that they renounced that duty when, when it was created. And I'm also sharing that the Office of Special Counsel, which is a federal law enforcement agency, it basically renounced its duty to be a federal law enforcement agency. It basically said it's its creation. 
we have no duty to enforce the laws under our jurisdiction. Yes, we have the discretion to enforce them, but we have no duty to enforce them. And the point being is, is that, so if you go to the, Merit, to the Office of Special Counsel, it, it does not have to do anything. It can, but it, does, it says it does not have to. And how that kind of plays out is that the Office of Special Counsel is not reporting its uh, determinations of agency wrongdoing to the agencies. The agency heads are kind of uh, in the dark as to whether or not they're adequately protecting their employees from prohibited personal practices. We just have a, we have a broken system. There's not, there's not the feedback loops. And, and nobody really knows, and, uh, you know, that's not, that's not the way, you know, looking at what's happened for the last 30 years, I don't think that's the way to best, you know, to, to, to run the civilian uh, federal civil service in a world armed to its nuclear teeth. You know, with, with many, you know, we're at war. Just President Obama said it just last week. We are at, we, we are at war with al-Qaeda. They mean us harm, and if the merit principles are, are not working properly, we're at an increased, we're at an unnecessarily increased risk of a nuclear 9-11 or other, you know, uh, catastrophe. Mm-hmm. And in particular, you have a gentleman in mind, or at least uh, you consider him a model for the kind of candidate that President Obama should put in charge of the uh, uh, OSC. Right. The Office of Special Counsel OSC, that it's a, uh, the, the, the special counsel is, it's a president nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate for a five-year term. So they don't, they don't serve at the pleasure of the president. They have a fixed term to try to make the office a little less political. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a gentleman, actually a, a former whistleblowing uh, Department of Energy attorney. His name is David Noland, and, and he is, you know, willing to, you know, in a sense, campaign for the position openly. A lot of people may be campaigning for the position behind the scenes, but he's willing to campaign more openly and say, if I am nominated and confirmed, this is what I'm going to do, you know, with the Office of Special Counsel. This is how I'm going to reinterpret the laws. This is what, you know, you, the, you know, whether it be in Congress or whether you be a, a federal employee, what you can expect. Now, the law, uh, going, going back 30 years, Peter, there is no statute of limitations on a prohibited personal practice. Mm-hmm. And this Office of Special Counsel could, in theory, reopen cases that are 30 years old and say, you know, we didn't do the proper investigation the first time or we didn't comply with all our statutory duties to protect these people going back the first time. We're going to reopen these cases. They, it could. I'm not saying it will, but it, uh, and it, there's no law that precludes it. Mm-hmm. And we've talked, you know, I've, I've listened to you speak to uh, Russ Tice and some other people who've lost security clearances. You know, Office of Special Counsel has never really tested just how much power it has to protect a Russ Tice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, so there's, I'm going to say, in theory, in theory, if, Russ, if, if when the National Security Administration, when they uh, revoked his clearance, if they didn't dot the I's and cross the T's in doing so for national security clearance procedures, I think there's a, there's a legal case to be made that the Office of Special Counsel could seek corrective action on, on, on Russ Tice's behalf or on, on a similar, you know, similar people with the FBI or CIA or, or um, you know, other intelligence agencies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, uh, I think, you know, the, the point is there's, there's no case law that says it couldn't. And if you had the right candidate, the right person running OSC, that person could try to push the law forward and say, we're going we're gonna, to you know, we're gonna try to not take a recessive view of what the law says to protect federal employees. We're going to take a very proactive view until the courts tell us we can't do it. We're going to presume we can. Now, uh, Joe, on this angle, uh, my criticism of the Obama administration is that the president himself and uh, Attorney General Holder seem to be allergic to full accountability. 
And uh, I have raised issues in other podcasts, and I won't try to impose my political views on you. But just as the observation, uh, this president, in my view, is not honoring his oath to protect and defend the Constitution by acting as if uh, investigations and potential prosecution of wrongdoing during the Bush administration is somehow optional and is, is a political issue uh, that can be weighed and, uh, and acted on at will. And I believe that there's clear indication in the domestic wiretapping, in the torture policies, and in some of the other areas, including uh, government contracting with uh, those who have uh, profited from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so there's a whole array of issues here that have been taken off the table, put off limits to investigation and accountability. So do you have any optimism that this administration would embrace your proposal, with or without Dave Nolan personally, to activate uh, both the MSPB and the OSC, not in a radical manner of, of changing its mission, but simply to get it to perform the mission that the statute created for it? Well, I think if President Obama were, 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 were you know, this is, uh, and I've, I've, I'm pretty uh, doing this for a long time, Peter, so if, if if you or someone asked President Obama, President Obama, you know, are civilian federal employees in the, in the federal civil service, are they adequately protected from agency violations of the merit principles? And before you say yes or no, tell me upon what, what's your basis for saying so. Yeah. And you'd have to say, I don't know, because the Merit Systems Protection Board for 31 years hasn't done the special studies that would tell me. And, and this is interesting. At my prompting, or perhaps David Nolan's prompting or someone else's prompting, the new uh, chair of the Merit Systems Protection Board, Susan Grumman, just confirmed uh, in October, in her sworn statement to the Senate, she said she would, she would do such special studies. So for the first time in 31 years, at least the current chair says she's going to do the special studies that comply with the law. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that, you know, we're trying to, you know, because when I'm listening to you, I'm saying, you know, if the merit systems had been meaningful, we wouldn't have had all these other scandals. It, we, I'm contending, okay, because mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. were in the Department of Justice. You know, we've uh, the Department of Justice. They had three or four uh, joint uh, Office of Professional Responsibility, Office of Inspector General reports the last year and a half issued about uh, improper hiring of interns, improper hiring of immigration judges, politicalization of the, the, the U.S. Attorney. Scan- you know, the firing mm-hmm. of the U.S. Attorneys. Mm-hmm. They were all prohibited personal practices. And and again, so so this is where it's a little odd. But the Department of Justice does not have jurisdiction over prohibited personal practices. That's the Office of Special Counsel. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's already been a little footsie, because it should be the Office of Special Counsel that's investigating all these things, not necessarily the Department of Justice. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and so when I'm, and, and when I'm hearing you say, well, President Obama doesn't want to go back and look at it, well, you know, uh, uh, whether I completely agree or not, if the, if the, if the, person, if the person like me down at down at, down in the you know the, the the guts of the Department of Justice said, look, I got to I got to enforce the law without fear or favor. You know, it it makes it harder for someone at the top to say, hey, just tell them to go this way because whatever you know they know they know better than to, than to try to take me on or to try to say, hey, merit, merit principles, sir. Mm-hmm. You know, so if these if these merit principles meant something or were vi- more viable, you know, I think it would have precluded a lot of the things that Mr. Obama is now having to try to deal with one way or another. Yeah. Good point. Um, uh, so, if, and and, and <laughs> so I'm, I'm not, I'm not asking a question uh, directly, 
but let's if we can all if we're not going to agree that the merit principles are supposed to be viable, then what do we have? Yeah. Other than other than you know, I'm the boss now. Do what I do what I say. Well, it, it, yeah. I mean, it allows for all kinds of ambiguity. Uh, it, it permits arbitrary actions, and it also permits silence or a lack of initiative when action is called for. Right. Everyone has to basically every you know. You should not have a nuclear safety engineer trying to figure out whether the, the workers at these at these DOE facilities are, are being are being adequately protected, the public's being adequately protected. I should have to keep I should not have to have my finger in the wind saying, Is it safe for me politically or economically to say it's unsafe for you physically today? Yeah. Very now good if you're an elected public official, yeah, you have you have to you have to keep an eye on the you know, what the what popular opinion is. But don't put that on a nuclear safety engineer. Indeed. Now, uh, Joe, separately you've written to the New York Times what would you like to see them to do uh, do to address these issues? Well, my case um, um, very much involves engineering ethics. Uh, I'm a professional engineer, as you mentioned. As, as a PE, I have a positive duty. It's in, in the law, in my rules of professional conduct, to blow whistles, regardless of possible workplace or in career retribution, in the, when related to uh, protecting public health and safety in the, in the course of my professional duties. And that's one reason why I'm still employed, is I could point to that objective standard. I've been a PE for 25 years. I was a PE when the Department of Energy hired me. I hope to be a PE when I, when I leave. Uh, so in a sense, if I, an analogy I've used is not perfect, but Peter, if you or I were to see a purse snatching on the street of San Francisco, we could certainly get involved as citizens, yep. but we wouldn't have a positive legal duty to get involved as we would if we were a deputized law enforcement officer on duty. Mm-hmm. And that's the analogy I use. I had a positive duty to blow whistles. You know, just like that, just like a, a policeman has a positive duty. That's why they carry a gun. You well, know, to, and a to, lot of to, people, to stop a, crime. a lot of people understand the concept of a mandated reporter, a teacher, or a doctor or a nurse who observes uh, physical abuse right. to a child has no choice. Right. They can be sanctioned and uh, subject to fines or imprisonment if they fail to make uh, a report as mandated by law. And so you're in that same situation. But what we've seen, and in particular the uh, array of people that we've talked to for the Boiling Frog series, those who have security clearances are exceptionally vulnerable to uh, illegal internal actions against them yep. that either cause them to go silent or cause them to leave their employment. Yeah, and I, actually, I, uh, I'll get back to the New York Times, but DOE tried to pull my clearance uh, early on in this. And and um, this was when Hazel O'Leary had, was secretary. Had I been blowing whistles five years Previously, I, they, I would have a greasy spot on the road. I just happened to be when Hazel O'Leary was saying zero tons reprisal and the Whistleblower Protection Act had been passed and the, the Federal Circuit hadn't gutted it yet. Um, but but they tried to they 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 tried. I won't say they nev- they never took official action, but they wouldn't renew it. And I said, well, what's going on here to the people in charge of security clearance? They said, well, what if they what if they're pulling my clearance in reprisal? And basically was. Well, no harm, no foul. If we don't, if we, if we, if we try but we fail, then you still have your clearance. Then we're not going to try to go after the people who try to pull your clearance. That's like, isn't this a violation of America's national security to basically try to corrupt the personal security process to engage in reprisal? And they didn't want to answer that question. Yeah. yeah. Um, but to, to go back, you know, asked about the, the New York Times. I grew up in New York. You can probably tell I'm not from East Tennessee. Yeah, we don't. We don't quite hear that Southern yeah. drawl, y'all. <laughs> um, and I, so I, I look at the New York Times online regularly, and um, they have a Washington bureau. 
And as I was going through my, my whistleblowing about nuclear safety issues, I got a little, a little contact with the New York Times back in the early to mid-'90s. So I've been going to them for several years about my concerns about the Office of Special Counsel and the Merit Systems Protection Board. And I'm saying this is government law-breaking. You know, by the First Amendment, you, you, you cite freedom of the press. Well, that creates a responsibility on a journalist to, you know, substantiate or dispel, you know, well-evidenced uh, allegations of government wrongdoing, or government law-breaking. And, and they haven't bit. And when I say, well, why, why, are they not, why are they not? And they keep saying, basically, well, we, we run it by, you know, some of the watchdog groups, and they're not basically substantiating it. I'm saying, well, okay, you know, because maybe have you considered the dynamic that, you know, that the system, the status quo is okay with them? And then I realized, well, they're part of status quo because they, they you know, they, the, the watchdog groups, you know, they develop people like me, they vet our concerns, and then they basically pitch them to the media. So if, you, if you're a New York Times reporter, you get plenty of stories from the watchdog groups, you know, so you've developed a relationship with them. And here I am basically saying, uh, you know, the system isn't working. It's, it's again, it's, 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 it's kind of a, uh, um, a boat, uh, boat rocking. Mm -hmm. That's my perception. And I, I put that, that's my letter to the publisher. If you are going to, you know, you have a public trust. It's in the, it's in the First Amendment. But what I, I noted, uh, the context of reading that letter, or writing that letter, is I read through the uh, New York Times' standard of ethics. And it really doesn't put any focus on its, its, its duty, uh, under the, you know, the implied duty of the First Amendment. Freedom of the press means you will, you know, publicize government wrongdoing. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not emphasized. It's not stressed. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think, again, it's kind of a... Um, you know whether what what they choose to do or not do is is their call. But you know eventually, I, I you know the, the, this law break you know this law breaking it's it's going to be it's going to be resolved. It's either been doing it right for 31 years or it's been doing it wrong for 31 years. But it hasn't been tested. It has. I've been trying to test it in court. We haven't gotten a decision yet. But you know the the words are pretty clear. The legislative history is fairly clear. And I can assure you that the Office of Special Counsel is, is doing everything it can to avoid having any court look at the way it's, it's been interpreting the law. It's been about two weeks since you wrote the publisher, Arthur Sulzberger, Jr. Uh, any response from the New York Times? I was told I got a, a brief response saying it had been assigned to a senior editor. So uh -huh. that's, that's, uh, that's the only response I received to date. Very interesting. Well, now, Joe, take a, a couple of minutes here to describe for our listeners, and I, I realize you've done a lot of things and it's hard to boil them all down to a couple of minutes, but if you could give us the key elements of the cases uh, that you have brought forward and how you managed them in a way that permitted you to uh, not only succeed in uh, the complaints that you put forward, but also hold on to your job. Um, okay. Well, I'm... Um... My background, I had a Navy scholarship to college, ROTC, then I served on nuclear submarines for six years as an officer. Mm -hmm. I was uh, handpicked by Rickover. I was interviewed with Rickover as becoming a nuclear uh, uh, submariner. So, Peter, in my early 20s, my first, if you will, full-time job, I'm out bobbing around the North Atlantic, and I have to wrap my head around the, you know, the concept that I could have an active role in the deaths of 20 million people. I was on a missile submarine, and that's what it was designed to do, was to kill 20 million people during mm -hmm. the Cold War. Um, and, and the way I justified that was to say that the Cold War was an enormously risky and expensive gamble to try to buy time for this world and its countries to try to resolve their problems more peaceably. So when I, I joined DOE, after, not immediately after that, I, wor I worked in the commercial nuclear power industry for a number of years, and I had a lot of deck plate, ex deck plate experience, if you will. I mean, I was I field. You know, I 
built, I built nuclear power plants. I was testing them. And I was hired into the Department of Energy to basically be a combination OSHA NRC inspector because the Department of Energy is self-regulating uh, because of its nuclear weapons mission. Okay. And this is in the early 90s. And I was just aghast at what I was seeing. You know, what thing, what, how different DOE was safety-wise from what I'd seen in the nuclear Navy and what I'd seen in commercial nuclear power. Um, it had just, it just been like a, a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, just a world unto itself. So then just, just to interject here, the commercial nuclear power industry is far safer than the Department of Energy in your view? Uh, going yes, going back uh, in the in the eighties and nineties, yes. Uh-huh. I mean, uh, to both both nuclear safety and, and worker safety. You know, just mm-hmm. just in terms of having you know, we have a, we we have lockout tagout. We have you know, a uh, 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 fall protection. You know, pressure safety. The Department of Energy, because of the federal entity, it didn't even design its uh, systems for any for any codes. Um, um, in parts, so you would have all these pressure vessels that weren't even code stamped. I'm giving you some of the jargon for engineering, but that's like what. So, in other words, they make the rules, but they don't have to follow any. Well, they, or the, yeah, or where they said we're the, you know, we're the Fed, so we can, you know, we can exempt ourselves from all the rules that apply to everybody else. Yes. Wow. Um, so, so I was, um, how I became a whistleblower was, um, so I'm hired to be a safety. I was, I was the first person hired into this job because it was, it was kind of my position was created as, as an indirect result of the, of the Chernobyl reactor accident in Russia. Um, and and um, and DOE at the time, this is in the late '80s, and, and people were finally saying, "What have we done? You know, we've been make, making these bombs for 40 years. What's what have we in terms of all the waste? Mm-hmm. In terms of the safety issues, you know, that, that had which for years had kind of under the cloak of national security, but also about it was good for the the contractors running the facilities. Uh, you know, had had basically been suppressed." In, in fact, in, in, you know, in part using national security or using security clearance as a way to keep uh, uh, concerns suppressed, but also, I mean, be honest about it, using good pay. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you would, if you wanted to get a promotion to the federal government, go to work for DOE because they'll put nuclear in there, and you'll go up, you'll go, you know, you'll, you'll, go, you'll go up from a 13 to a 14. Mm-hmm. So you might think uh, you get the best and the brightest, yes, but you also get people who look the other way at a lot of things because they get a bigger paycheck. You know that was that's part of the dynamic of what we what what we led us to what we have now with the Department of Energy. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I I, um, I voiced concerns initially about the fact I was using a a hand-me-down 8088 computer and I was just explained I was had had a lot of field experience I didn't know how to type and it was literally 30 seconds a word on a spell check hmm. and I'm saying I'm I'm a, I'm a very poor typist clerk typist I think I'm pretty good as a field engineer and. Uh, my boss said he wouldn't get me a better computer because he wanted to use all the money to basically hire his good friends as, as support service contractors and pay him $250, you know, about $150 an hour. Uh-huh. So I, I voiced concerns about that, and, and I realized, wow, the, at the time, DOE's budget for support service contractors had ballooned from like $25 million to $700 million. So everybody in DOE and headquarters were basically, you know, had, had you know, I'm not going to say that these people had no qualifications, but it was a lot of back scratching with support service contractors and a lot of, you know, very lucrative kind of, uh, you know, not very overseen contracts. And mm-hmm. these support service contractors were being used as staff augmentation for the Department of Energy because the Department of Energy was hiring contractors to look at other contractors because the Department of Energy didn't have any in-house staff with any, <laughs> any ability to, to figure out what was going on. Yeah, and that's that's a recipe for disaster. It is, uh, yeah. And, and, we, and we have one in the Department of Energy. That's environmentally, at least. Um, so, so because when I did that, it was like everybody in headquarters said, get Carson. <laughs> you know? So I'm a safety inspector, so how do you get me? 
Well, you say I'm, I'm incompetent. So you start throwing all my, my safety findings into the garbage can. And, Peter, I think people have died in the Department of Energy because of that kind of suppression of very significant safety findings in a, in a number of, of, whether it be pressure safety, lockout tag, or electrical safety. I was finding a lot of things wrong. But when I was saying finding, I really wasn't finding because people knew they were wrong, but they were afraid to say so. So I was just, I was just basically saying, you know, when you're the inspector and you're finding pretty elementary things wrong, you have to say, well, why am I the one finding this wrong? Why not the people responsible for this facility? Mm-hmm. But the people in the facility were aware of the problems, but they were also aware if I rock boats, it will not go well for me. Yeah. So, you know, so I don't want to come across that I was like, I, I feel too much like the Pink Panther. It wasn't like I was brilliant. It was like, no, but this is wrong, and I'm going to document it's wrong. And furthermore, I'm going to document the reason is that part of the reason I'm, that I'm the one finding this is because the people in the, in, in the facilities are afraid to document it. Well, and I can imagine them saying, well, let's let Joe do that. I still am. <laughs> well, at any rate, so so uh, so it kind of transitioned from my voice of concerns about support service contractors to you're suppressing my safety findings, and, and, and then 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 I became uh, I'm a PE. I can't let you do this. And, and here we are, 17 years later, and I, I prevailed now numerous times in whistleblower reprisal uh, related litigation in front of the Merit System Protection Board. But the Office of Special Counsel has never done anything for me. I have mm-hmm. won eight times in MSPB. And the Office of Special Counsel has never even found there's reasonable grounds to believe any wrongdoing occurred. Wow. I mean... <laughs> now, if you've, if you've won eight times, aren't you the only one who's ever won? <laughs> very, very few. Yeah, very few. And, and I kind of hit the sweet spot, as I mentioned before. If I were to do this a few years before or a few years after, I would not have won. Mm-hmm. A few years before, the law didn't exist. A few years after, the Federal Circuit had gutted the law, so, so, the, the, so the, you know... So the MSPB would have ruled against me based upon the Federal Circuit precedent. Yeah. Now, when I did the Google search, Joe, uh, a letter that you wrote to incoming Secretary of Energy Stephen Chu Mm -hmm. uh, popped up here, and it's dated uh, March of last year. Did you get any response from the Secretary? Not as yet, no. Uh Uh-huh. Now, he's Um, he's your boss. Well, you know, through a a wide bureaucracy, and and, um, it's, it's... Has he been to Oak Ridge? No, not as yet. Uh-huh. No. Okay. And, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's what I'm, I'm actually right now, um, I've, I've got a number of FOIAs out, the Freedom of Information Act requests to about 20 agencies, including the Department of Energy. And the Department of Energy has admitted in a response to my FOIA that it has no records uh, of, you know, the secretary, currently Secretary Chewer's predecessors, of their performance in their duty, their statutory duty to prevent prohibited personal practices in the Department of Energy. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to, I, I, but the way the system works, he can't do it by himself. He has to rely, he has to, he can do, he, do, he does parts of it, but if MSPB and OSC are not doing their parts, it's impossible for him to do his part. Mm-hmm. So when Secretary O'Leary was, you know, uh, 18 years ago, 92, or not, what, 17 years ago, saying, I'm setting a policy of zero tolerance for reprisal, she, she didn't have the good, she didn't have, she could say that, but she, she couldn't implement it because you know, because when you alleged reprisal, then the Inspector General of the Department of Energy said, well, you have to go to the Office of Special Counsel. We don't have jurisdiction. Well, then how can Hazel O'Leary say zero tolerance when, you know, she doesn't have all the, you know, doesn't have all the power to make that policy stick? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that would be the case, though, in any other agency. So if you can have, you know, you can have Mr. Holder or, or the, the head of the CIA or the head of NSA saying, you know, zero tolerance for reprisal, you can't do it by yourself, sir. You're relying upon OSC and the Merit System Protection Board in part to, to make you know to make that policy. That's just the way that the, the laws are written. 
Yeah. Uh, uh, so that's why, again, I'm going, if Mr. Obama, if he, you know, uh, chooses to listen, Mr. Obama, please verify to Peter Collins or to Congress or to anybody that the merit, the merit principles of the federal civil service are viable, that federal employees are, in fact, adequately protected from prohibited personal practices. And you can't, there's, you know, you could say it, but there's no, there's no, you know, show me, you know, show me the record, show me the evidence. There is sure. no evidence right now. Yeah. Well, Joe, I want to thank you for your activism. Uh, thanks for joining us today and telling us at least a part of your story. I appreciate what you've done in your correspondence with the president and the New York Times, and I hope you get some response, if not uh, some of the uh, results that you would hope for. And please stay in touch with me as, uh, as time goes on, and let's talk again as uh, other cases come forward. Well, I, uh, um, I appreciate your uh, interviewing me, Peter, and I hope that other uh, federal employees out there um, will you know, we'll, we'll, you know, bang the drum or do something to say, you know, we have to do something but make these merit principles viable. Um, and but again, thank you for listening. And uh, you have you have an activist audience. Well, we uh, sure so do. Let's uh, let's see what happens. All right, Joe Carson, thanks for joining me today here on the Peter B. Collins Show. And I want to hear from you. Blow the whistle at me. Let me know what you think. Peter at PeterBCollins.com. Happy trails. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling.